0: Beloved, congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the human body, on average, has about 30 trillion cells. That's a 30 with 12 zeros following it. And the average human body also has between, depending on which research you read, between 38 to 100 trillion microbes, bacteria and other tiny organisms more than the number of our cells. And if you're wondering or worrying about how much weight that adds to you, don't worry, it's about 200 grams. It's not a significant thing. Now, if you were to ask one of these bacteria to describe what is a human, you can imagine for the moment that we could communicate with the bacterium and ask this, it would be very difficult for that little microbe to describe, in terms of its little world, what a human is. Because we as humans are in a totally different category than microbes. And yet, the distance between a bacterium and a human is a lot shorter and smaller than the distance, the infinite distance, the unbridgeable distance between a human being and God. That's the question which is the title of the sermon. What is God? The bacteria might ask, what is a human, if it could ask something? Human beings can begin with this question, what is God? And, and, and we as believers, we would tend to think, well, we should ask, who is God? Because we know who he is. But if you just speak to a human being in general that doesn't necessarily believe in God, that's, that's a great question to start with. What is God? What is a human being? What is God? There's only one of him, but what is he? Now, both we and the bacterium are created, and so we belong in that general category of <coughs> created things, even though we're very different. But the difference between humans and God is that God is in a totally different category. He is the creator, and we are part of the creation. And that huge, massive distinction between creator and creation is the basis of everything. That's where the Word of God begins. In the beginning, God. The Bible doesn't explain where God came from because he doesn't come from anywhere. He is. And then the Bible proceeds to describe that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so you have the creator on the one hand and you have the creation on the other. That is the fundamental basis of all of reality for us as human beings. And a denial of that distinction between creator and creation is the basis or the essence of all false religion. Now, we looked at Romans chapter one, we read through it, and look at verse 25, if you still have your Bible handy, and see how the Apostle describes it, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, we live in a post-modern, a post-Christian world, a post-Christian society. After almost... 2000 years of Christianity in the West, our society has turned away from recognizing a transcendent God. It began in the 1800s with philosophers like Nietzsche declaring that God was dead. It was picked up on by the whole process of evolutionary thought in the 19th century as scientists and other thinkers rejoiced in the consequences of the error, the heresy or the false teaching of evolution, saying if the world has developed on its own, then we no longer need a creator and we don't need someone up there telling us what to do. We're free to make our own decisions. It's just us, the process, the end result Of millions of years of evolution. And so we live in this culture, this society, which has declared a transcendent God. That means a God who is far above the creation and far above human beings. They have declared him to be dead or non-existent. And it's important for us to understand that. It's important for us to understand that We are really weird in this world as Christians. If you go to university and you talk about God and you talk about how you know God and who he is, people are going to look at you as though you're crazy. Because no one believes that anymore. That there is a transcendent God who created all things and before whom all must fall down and worship. Now what happens when we deny the creator. What happens, and we see that in Romans chapter one, is that we end up making creation or a part of creation into our God. Humans were built to worship. And if we declare God dead and off the scene, then we will worship something or someone in the creation. And that's exactly what has been happening especially since the 1960s in the West, Eastern spirituality has rushed into the vacuum caused by the declaration that God is dead. And it is infused in almost everything that we hear and that we see and that we come into contact with in the media, in books, in movies, in magazines, in popular music. You think of that theme which comes back all the time, that all is one, that all paths lead to God, that we need to reject religion, and religion then is the kind of things that we preach and we confess as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that we need to abandon that and the transcendent God. That's religion, and we need to embrace spirituality, which is the world without God the unity of all things. And you have that whole Eastern idea of the yin and the yang, where you have that circle with the part of it being white and part of it being black, and then in the white part, there's a little black dot, and in the black part, there's a little white dot, and so that the world is a continual conflict, but yet equilibrium between dark and light, between good and evil, and the good has a little evil in it, and the evil has a little good in it. And it comes in in popular culture. You think of those Star Wars movies that a lot of people like, the the dark side of the force. Notice that it's not another evil force, it's the dark side of the force because the force has the yin and the yang. Everything is one. In the 1980s, Carl Sagan, he produced a mini-series on TV called Cosmos and it began with these words, the cosmos, the universe, is all that is, or ever was, or ever will be. Doesn't that sound real similar to what we confess about the true God? That he is, and he was, and he is to come. But when God is declared dead, the universe is put in his place. The cosmos is all that is, or ever was, or ever will be. And that is the essence of every false religion, that God is in everything or that everything is God. And that is behind the push, the drive that we see in our culture, in politics and in economics and in all the different aspects of our culture, the push towards one world government supported by one interfaith false church with all the religions mixed together because all roads lead to God, all beliefs lead to God. And so in that one world government and that one false church supporting it, we see the beasts of Revelation chapter 13, the religion of the supremacy of man, the religion of Babel, Man is united in worship of himself. That's the religious context in which we live. And if you don't agree with it, and if you don't cooperate with it, you are hateful, and you are bigoted, and you are a dangerous heretic. And we're finding that out, aren't we? When we dare to open our mouths and speak what we believe. We're shut down real quick, more and more. And what happens? When people deny the distinction between creator and creation, then that follows from that, that every distinction is erased. If everything is one, then every distinction is erased. Every created distinction that God placed in the created order. And that's why we're seeing in our time the erasure of the distinction between man and woman. It began with feminism, where women were basically seen to be men with uteruses. And now it has moved on to the point where you can just carve and chop and, and, and do all kinds of uh, radical uh, surgery to make a man into a woman a woman into a man. And the entire movement, which is being celebrated in what our prime minister calls pride season around this time, the LGBTQ and the other letters, is part of that whole erasing of the distinctions that God has placed in creation. Homosexual literally means same sex. And so homosexuality hates the diversity and the distinctions that God has placed in creation. Marriage is a created ordinance. Marriage celebrates unity in diversity. A glorious difference between man and woman comes together and produces new life. It is life-giving. And yet, the religion of the rainbow being celebrated at this time of the year most of the variations of that alphabet soup sexuality are inherently sterile and not life-giving at all. Now, as I'm saying these things, perhaps some of you are feeling very uncomfortable because these are politically incorrect things to say, and you may be thinking, I wonder if my boss at work or my colleagues at work tune in to this service and hear what the church that I'm a member of is talking about and what it's saying About these things. And maybe you're uncomfortable. And I think that would be a demonstration of how this new religion is seeping into the church. It is infecting our worldview, it's changing the way we see things. And we need to do some work here as God's people. We need to work on getting to know God better to make sure that we do not exchange the truth about God for the lie. And so there is the distinction between man and woman, which is erased. Also the distinction between humans and animals. You think of Peter Singer, professor of bioethics at Princeton University, who has declared that the life of a newborn baby is of less value than the life of a pig Or a dog, or a chimpanzee. In the ethics, this man is a a guy who teaches bioethics, and he says that it is more moral to kill a newborn child than it is to kill a pig, a grown pig. And it's not just there in the United States. But right here in Alberta, just a few years ago, in Lake Louise, a lodge was fined $27,000 for removing one swallow's egg. One. $27,000. A Banff ski resort, just a few years ago, was charged up to $300,000 for every pine tree that they cut down. And so those are the massive fines and punishments you get for moving eggs and cutting down trees. But if you want to kill a baby, then our health system, our public health system in Alberta will pay for it free. It'll provide the doctors and the surgical tools to tear apart a child in the womb. And so, birds, eggs, and trees are worth more than human life. That's a direct result of declaring God dead. All the distinctions go between sex and gender, man and woman, humans and animals. Because if the universe is all that there is, if there's no God, then man is not special. Man is not distinct. Man is not created in the image of God. Man is just one more thing that evolution has vomited out over the, over the millions of years. We're just walking sacks of protoplasm. And then our entire system of law loses its basis. It becomes a simple exercise in power. Our charter of rights still says that Canada is based on the supremacy of God and the rule of the law, but we deny that very God whom we invoke in our founding documents. And so when man is no longer seen as being created in the image of God, that that underpins our entire system of law in the West. You pull that away and law becomes a simple exercise in power that you will do what we say if we have the power. And we're experiencing that right now here in Canada. Then human beings just become one more living organism on planet Earth. And what do you do if one organism in an ecosystem grows too much, if there are too many of them? Well, that's kind of like a yeast infection, isn't it? You just have too many and it becomes something which is pathological, it's not helpful to the system. And so you need to get rid of it. You need to reduce the overpopulation and so we live in a world in which people out loud call for the culling of the herd we need to reduce the population of the planet from 8 billions to down to 1 billion or less in other words we need to work and plan so that 7 out of every 8 human beings dies and isn't replaced now this is a theological problem This is a religious problem. Man has exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and so God, as we read in Romans 1, gave them up. He gives them over to the delusion. Rather than knowing and honoring God, as we read in verse 21, they suppress the truth. They become futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts are darkened. And because this is a theological problem. It's a problem with understanding who God is and what our relationship to God is. We can't fight it with social programs or with political or economic plans. We need to fight it at the root. And we need to be very careful how we define the problem. We need to be very careful not to accept the framing of the problem in the terms defined by the unbelieving world which suppresses the truth in unrighteousness because the unbelieving world will say all is one. There is no transcendent God. And you Christians, with your insistence on the old and outdated view of a transcendent God, you are the problem. You are hateful. And you are regressive. And nobody wants to be called hateful and regressive and bigoted. And so the temptation is, and the temptation into which the false church falls, is to look at the world and say, please, what can we change about what we say and what we do so that you accept us, so that we are acceptable in your eyes? We will embrace your view of reality and we will radically transform the gospel into a message which fits the spirit of the age. And so we have churches flying the rainbow flag, declaring themselves LGBTQ allies, and those churches, by doing that, are declaring that the transcendent God is dead. They are declaring that man is God that man determines right and wrong and that man will bring about heaven on earth and that the problem, the root problem of all violence and all evil and all wickedness and all harm and all suffering, the root problem is the transcendent God of the Scriptures. He is hateful, he is judgmental, he is patriarchal, and he's got to go if we want heaven on earth. Holiness gets in the way of diversity and tolerance, love and acceptance. And so the kingdom of darkness hijacks language to portray the transcendent creator God as the problem, not as the solution. And their hymn, their hymn of the religion of man is John Lennon's Imagine. Imagine there's no heaven, and no hell, and no religion, all people living for today, living life in peace. If we get rid of God, all our problems will be solved, and I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. Well, that's what the world around us tells us. Well, we know different because we have the very word of God, the revelation of God in our hands. And the Bible tells us that all evil, violence, injustice, war, wickedness, confusion, selfishness, despair, all of those things are because people do not know God. They have exchanged the truth about God for the lie, and that leads to death. And they're tasting it now, they're experiencing it now, and they will, if they do not repent, experience it eternally. Jesus says that to know Creator God is the opposite of death. What does the Lord Jesus say in John chapter 17? He says this, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And that's why we're turning this afternoon to Belgic Confession, Article 1. These words were written hundreds of years ago, but they are oh so important and vital and essential to our life today as God's people in this world. These words make all the difference, and they begin in the right place. We have to know God. That's the very fundamental beginning to the solution for the human problem. Now, Gideon de Bré was not sitting in an ivory tower, just writing down some theological words. He wrote this confession in blood. Gideon de Breh believed these scriptural truths to the point of dying for them. And he begins with the words and the language of scripture. He says, we all believe with the heart and we confess with the mouth. And that's a quotation from Romans chapter 10. If you have your Bible handy, just have a look there at Romans chapter 10. And you see the context. Why is the apostle talking about believing uh, in the heart And confessing with the mouth. We'll we'll look there in chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So believing and confessing have to do with being saved with being saved from this world of evil and sin and misery and pain and suffering. Believing and confessing is the, is, is, it has to do with salvation from sin and its consequences. And so, Belgian Confession, Article 1, begins by calling attention of all sinners to the only hope, for those who are lost in sin and misery. We need to believe with the heart and confess with the mouth the only true God. And you think of what Isaiah the prophet says in Isaiah 45, he says this, or the Lord says through him, he says this, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. And so knowing God is knowing life is knowing salvation. There's nowhere else to find it. There's nowhere else to go. We believe, if you look at the text of the Belgic, that there is only one God. That's the very definition of who God is, that he is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, in the scriptures, you sometimes read things like, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? And you see the word God in a little letter G. And that's because in the Hebrew, the word El, which is God, exalted one, mighty one, or the word Elohim, which is kind of a plural, the supreme and mighty one, is used for God. But it is also used to describe mighty kings and authorities as well from time to time. And so... Elohim can refer to God or it can refer to great powerful people in the creation. That's why the Old Testament sometimes says, Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the Elohim? And then it means it in the plural, the different powerful uh, authorities that are in the world. But ordinarily, the Old Testament uses the word Elohim to describe the most exalted and the most supreme authority who is God of gods, Lord of lords. There's only one of him. And then we we go on, as we look at the the text of the confession here, to a number of perfections or attributes of God that are listed by our brother Guido the Bre and confessed by the church from the scriptures. And the first ones are what we can put into the category of incommunicable attributes— Theologians make a distinction between communicable attributes and incommunicable attributes. Now, these are big words, but it's not that hard. Uh, Communicable means it can be communicated. So, for instance, when it says, when we confess from the Scriptures that God is perfectly wise, now we can't, as humans, be perfectly wise, but He can give us the gift of wisdom. We can reflect, in a smaller way, His wisdom by His gifts to us. His justice we can reflect. His goodness can be reflected in us. So there are things which he can communicate to us and we can reflect. There are other things about his being that he cannot communicate to us. They are just reserved for him. And those are the first ones in this list. He is a simple and spiritual being. We can't be that, just he is. Simple means that he is not compound. He is not made up of parts. Human beings, we're made up of 30 trillion cells, plus a whole microbiome, and, and you can take off an arm, and, and I'm still a human being. You can take off a part, and I'm still a human being. God has no parts. He's not made up of different parts. He just is God. He's not a circle cut into three pie shapes, where one of the thirds is the Father, one third is the Son, one third the Spirit. That's not how it works. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. The Father is God. And we can't divide God up by his other attributes. We can't say, well, God is, is partly love, and he is partly mercy, and he is partly justice, and we can't play one attribute of God over against the other. It's impossible because God is love. All love. And he is all justice. And he is all Oh mercy. So we can't divide God into little bits. He just simply is. And now he is a simple and spiritual being. And that's kind of the same thing. A spirit is not made up of parts like a physical created person or creature is. The spiritual emphasizes the fact that he is not physical, material, If you look at the Athanasian Creed, the eighth line, it says the the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are uncreate. They are not created. Now, Now, angels are spirits. Angels are spirits, but they're created. So they're spirits in a very, very different category than God. God is not made of any substance. He's not made of any material. He's not part of the creation in any way, whereas a spirit is. The angels, for instance are limited, even though they're simple beings, they're limited to a certain point in space and time. They're part of the creation. So an angel can't be everywhere at the same time, like God is. And so we think of these things, and and it's a little bit too much for our minds, really, how different God is. And we think of what the psalmist says, who is like the Lord our God? And the answer is no one. God is unique. He is transcendent. He is far above anything that we can imagine. He's far above our human reality. And I'm just going to go quickly through the rest of the uh, attributes that are listed here in Article 1, very briefly, Eternal means that God is outside of time and space. Now, sometimes we think of it the wrong way. We think, well, God's eternal. That means that before the foundation of the earth, he existed on a timeline going way back infinitely. That's not how it works. God doesn't move along no timeline. God is not in time or space. God is. And I think that it might be helpful to use this example. If you think of time like a river going through a canyon, And there are a bunch of rafters, different groups of rafters that are are paddling through the canyon. And if you're up in a helicopter, you can see them all at the same time, but they can't see each other. And so that's kind of how time works. People might be over here and they're going around a curve and you up there, you can see the entire course, but they're only where they are. And that's a little bit how time works for God. God sees all of time before him as one eternal presence. God is not constrained by time, He is not bound by time, He's not limited by time. He sees the entire history of the universe from the beginning, Genesis 1-1, to the never-ending end. And He does it effortlessly, doesn't have to really work hard at that, He just knows it all. And He sees it all in one eternal present. Now if you think about that, what about when you sin? You know, sometimes we think, well, you know, God already, Jesus already died on the cross and, and he paid for my sin. So, you know, does it really matter if I just give in to this sin? Is it going to change anything? I'm just going to say, forgive me, Lord, and it's all, it's all fixed. But because God sees all of time in an eternal present, when I sin today, and when I say, Lord, forgive me my sin, God says, oh, yeah, I forgive it. And he nails it to the cross. Because I'm bound by time, but he's not. And so when you sin today, when we sin today, brother and sister, that sin presses down on the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And maybe that's something which should make us think twice or three times before we just blandly give in to temptation. He is eternal. He is incomprehensible. I want to turn with you to Romans chapter 11 for a moment. Romans chapter 11, 33 to 36. Romans chapter 11, that's page 947 in your pew Bible. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever." I've mentioned this in other sermons, how Augustine, speaking about this text, said, I I see the depth, but I do not see the bottom, and there is none. You can go deeper and deeper and deeper into the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, into His unsearchable judgments, His inscrutable ways, and you will never get to the end. You will never get to the bottom. We can't put God into our minds. We can't figure Him out. We can't put Him under a microscope. He's too much for us. And if you're worried about being bored in eternity in the new heavens and the new earth, thinking that after a while you'll have seen everything, don't worry Because God is unfathomable depths of love and grace and mercy and goodness and truth and the riches, those depths of riches we can mine forever and ever and ever. And every time we come to a point where we think, I just can't handle it, it's just too much, we will turn a corner and realize that we have only seen one drop of a universe full of oceans which still remain. Which in turn are just one drop of another multiverse of oceans that remain. There's just too much for us to fit into our puny little brains. He is incomprehensible. My ways are higher than your ways, says the Lord, and they certainly are. And he is invisible. The scripture says, 1 Timothy chapter 6 16, he dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. He's spirit, he's not material. Moses, throughout the whole Old Testament process of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, Moses never saw God. He saw the blinding glory of God. But he couldn't see God because God cannot be seen. God uses human language to describe it. You will see my back. Not because he has a back, but he's just saying you're going to see part of the glory. You wouldn't be able to handle all of it. The glory of God is so incomprehensibly great that the sun, the blazing sun at noonday, which we cannot look at or we'll get blind, is but a dim single LED compared to the brightness of the majesty of the glory of God. He is invisible. He is immutable. That means he doesn't change. You can't take stuff away from God. You can. We can mutate. We can We can lose an arm in an accident, then we're changing. We were one way, now we're another way. We age, and all of us know how that works. And the older we get, the more we kind of, it kind of presses in upon us how mutable we are, how our bodies and our minds change over time. So when something is mutable, you can take away, you can add, you can move. But God is immovable, he is unchangeable, The scripture says there is no variation or shadow due to change. He simply is. And He is infinite. And infinite means that He has literally no end, no fin, no end, no limits, no boundaries. He is everywhere, He is in all time, He is in all space, and there are no limits to all of His attributes, to His goodness to his justice, to his wisdom, to his love, to his power, to his glory, to his mercy. They go on and on forever. You know, even Solomon understood that. If you look at 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27, where the temple is being inaugurated, 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27, he says this, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. The universe cannot contain God, let alone a little building and part of the universe. And so now we get to the the communicable attributes, beginning there with almighty, because even though, of course, no human being can be almighty, omnipotent, Yet God does give us power in this world. You think of Psalm 8, where the Lord says that He sets man over the creation. He gives him dominion over all things. That's He's reflecting the power of God over the the universe, over the world. But God is Almighty. He's mighty in a different way than any human can be. He has total and absolute sovereignty. His will will be done. Nothing can happen without his decree. And then we move on to the words perfectly wise. Now, knowledge is facts and data. Wisdom is knowing what to do. And God knows all completely and perfectly, comprehensively. And he acts with perfect wisdom. God never makes mistakes. He always knows the right thing to say and the right thing to do. Always does what is for his glory and what is for our salvation, for our life. And then he is just, we confess. What does the scripture say? What do the celestial beings and the angels in heaven say? Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. And we're going to sing Psalm 97 in a few moments. We're going to sing about how he firmly based his throne on righteousness, on justice alone. And that the heavens everywhere, his righteousness, his justice declare. God is perfectly wise and just and good. And you think of what the scripture says. Taste and see that the Lord is good. He gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. All that God has created is good and to be received with thanksgiving. Every good gift comes from above. These are some of the words which we can use to describe who God is. There's a lot more we could say. This is what Gita de Brer summarizes it as here in Article 1. This is who we worship. But we've only scratched the surface. This is only a a stammering of a tiny part of the greatness, of the glory, of the majesty, of the exaltation of his supreme being. And we think of Psalm number eight, the first verse, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. And because God is so high and exalted and glorious and worthy to be worshipped, whenever in all of history someone comes into the presence of God, they fall down on their face and they worship. And that's what's happening every moment in heaven. We sang hymn number five at the beginning of the service. And hymn number five is drawn from Revelation chapter four. If you have your Bible handy... Just flip to Revelation chapter 4 there and see the context of that hymn. Holy, holy, holy. Every moment angels and the heavenly beings and the saints in glory are worshiping God. That's there at the end of chapter 4 of Revelation. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Now verse 9 of chapter 4. And by your will, they existed and were created. The worship never ends in heaven. And it ought never to end in our lives and our hearts here on earth. And this is who God is. Worthy of all praise because of who he is and what he has done. And we were created to reflect, not the immutable Oh, not the incommunicable uh, attributes, but we were created to reflect the character of God. and we didn't. We didn't. We failed miserably, and we fell. And so what did God do? God sent His Son. God became man. How is this possible? The eternal came into time and space. The incomprehensible, the invisible stooped down to show himself to us in a way which we can understand and see as a human being. The immutable, the unchangeable God took on a human nature which changed from zygote to embryo to newborn baby to toddler to young child to teenager to adult man. The infinite God, no limits, no end to him. He subjected himself to the limits of time and space and a human body in his human nature. How is this even possible? What does the Bible say? Hebrews chapter 1: three? He, Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. The exact imprint, we're supposed to be the reflecting the image. We're made in the image, but Jesus Christ is the image. We reflect, He is. He is the wisdom of God. He is the righteousness of God. He is the epitome of the revelation of the goodness of God because God came to us and he said, Look, I've given you everything. I've given you the world. I've given you life. I've given you being. And now I give you myself. And in Christ, the transcendent God reveals himself to us as the Imminent God, the God who is with us, Emmanuel. We wanted to become gods, and that brought all the evil into the world. And as long as human beings want to take the place of God, this will always bring evil and destruction and death when we want to be our own gods and determine our own fate and be the captains of our own souls. But in these broken miserable, dark, and dying world that we live in, God comes with the gospel that we believe, that we live, and that we proclaim. And the gospel says, stop trying to fix what you can't fix. Stop deluding yourself that you can become gods. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Believe with all your heart in the Lord Jesus Christ. Bow the knee to his lordship. Confess him to be king of kings, lord of lords, God of God, true God of true God. Now, we live in a world which suppresses that truth in unrighteousness, which has exchanged the truth about God for a lie. We live in a world given over to foolishness and futile thinking and darkened hearts. We live in a world which is worshiping the creation and not the creator. And we cannot help them by becoming like them. We cannot help them by enabling them. We cannot help them by making approving noises. We cannot help them by being desperate for their acceptance and their approval. If we want to know how to help the world we need to start by knowing God. And if we know God then we will know how to stand. And I I just want to take a moment here to speak especially to the men of the congregation. The women, our sisters, put us to shame in how dedicated they are to gathering together to study the Word of God. And I'm not sure what we're so busy with, but we're too busy to do it because there are hardly any men's Bible studies in this congregation. And if we want to stand as Church of God in this world with this huge tsunami of wickedness and anti-Christianity, which is just towering above us, the only way we can stand is to stand firm in the Word of God, to know Him, to know who He is, to know His revelation, to know Him in Christ. And that means we got to be in the Word. And maybe we need to make some radical changes to the way we organize our lives, but we need to be studying the Word of God because when we study the Word of God, then we know who He is and what He has done. And you can only stand in the Gospel and the way, the truth, and the life By knowing the true God, the only God. And to know him is to worship him. To know him is life. To know him is to know that overflowing fountain of all good, which will wash away every sin and every corruption, every injustice and every stain, every perversion, which will wipe away every tear, which will restore everything broken, which will make all things new, and which will literally bring about a new heaven on earth. The God whom we know in Christ Jesus is our hope and our joy and our salvation. There is no other way. There is no other truth. There is no other life. Amen.